and you learn how people move. Are they running curved? Are they running, you know, a full 20 yards all the time? Are they only running five yards? Are they running 12 yards? And whatever you start seeing patterns of how far people are running, then that's essentially how you, you set up your timing gates or your, your game or whatever it might be. So that's also just as important because now you're starting to tie in what happens in the game to your actual play experience. So now, you know, don't be afraid to put your timing gates at an angle where you're running a curve. Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid to work rundowns and don't be afraid to roll soccer ball out or where you're working there and then you go and sprint and take off. That was Jared Burton and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Lost Empire Herbs, and I want to share with you how to get a free bag of pine pollen through Lost Empire here today. Quickly first, I used to think herbs was just Jinko biloba you got at the drugstore, but after being introduced to compounds such as the Phoenix Formula through Lost Empire, I've been a regular consumer of Lost Empire Herbs for over four years now. The Phoenix Formula instantly changed my viewpoint on herbalism. I was literally buzzing with energy after my first dose. Within two weeks, I was noticing strength improvements in the weight room. And it's been fun expanding uh, my herbalism regime to different things throughout the Lost Empire Herbs store. Uh, In Phoenix Formula in particular, along with Shiliagit, which is a very popular herb for strength and performance, you also have pine pollen, which is a superfood. It offers a variety of energy, health, and performance benefits. And you can grab that free bag of pine pollen with the modest cost of shipping by heading to justflypinepollen.com. If you want to check out other herbs that I enjoy through Lost Empire, you can head to lostempireherbs slash justfly and grab 15% off your order. I can't recommend Lost Empire enough, and I really enjoy the fact that I've been able to partner with them through this podcast for as long as I have. So be sure to check that out. Let's get on to the rest of the show. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm excited to welcome back to the show Jared Burton. Jared is a performance specialist, a chiropractic student, and a health coach. Jared got his coaching start working with Brady Volmering, who I recently have had on the show, uh, working uh, with DAC Baseball. Uh, He spent his recent years coaching, consulting, and running educational courses in the private sector. Jared was on the podcast a little over a year ago. And in that podcast, he spoke a lot on work capacity development and really rethinking the way we look at work capacity in light of how we perceive our environment, what our belief systems are, and adding pieces of that biopsychosocial structure or hierarchy into work capacity. And within that conversation, we were also talking about the role of perception in speed training. And that's actually something that I wanted to get a lot more into. We didn't have time for it to really expand on that in the last podcast. So we will on this one. We'll be getting a lot into the role and the interplay between our environment and our speed outputs, how to design speed training sessions based off of our environment and the specific elements of the game. We'll be talking about some differences in training versus competition, the role of play and exploration relative to outputs. We'll be talking about variability and randomness in training and much more. I'm excited to get you guys this podcast here again. uh, Jared Burton back on the show. Let's get to episode 378. Jared, it's great to have you back on the show, man. You know, I know last time uh, you were on the podcast, I believe we got a little bit into some perception and speed-based stuff, like how, for example, how an athlete sprints when just sprinting versus uh, having a Frisbee thrown or being chased, and then like the repeatability of those things versus just doing it 
for a timing gait or maybe just sprinting as fast as you can or to a percentage. So I'm kind of getting long-winded here, but uh, I'm curious what got you started in considering the role of environment on training, on speed, on how we display athleticism. Yeah. So what got me started on that, I mean, I talked previously in other podcasts how um, uh, Dak Baseball, Brady Vollmering, we were out at a, facil- a facility in Missouri and our the amount of athletes that we had uh, grew. So then we had to bring on somebody else. And so uh, we ended up hiring on a guy, Brett Adams from Transcending Performance. And he did a lot more with like small sided games and skill work. And I was in more of the, the weight room side, uh, but I knew that he would be a good fit. So we brought him on. And then I just started seeing how he would interact with players or the, our, our, you know, our, our athletes and how he would structure workout sessions was completely different than, you know, you would ever think of, like, it wasn't just, okay, we're going to get underneath this barbell. There was starting to be game set up. And, and so I, I thought this was really interesting because, you know, everything that I've, my background is, is high velocity, high volume, a lot of that Schroeder stuff where, you know, you're doing everything as fast as you can and you're doing it in a, in a, you know, ideal position, whatever that perfect position uh, means. And at that moment, I realized that I never thought about what that looks like on the field when people are actually participating. Uh, Cause I was always on the assumption that, well, if you train a muscle, how to, you know, do its job, whether it's just to flex or extend, then that's going to carry over into sport. Uh, but then I quickly realized that there's <laughs> that the whole uh, concept of transfer training. It's a, it's a lot more complex than that. So that's where I first got into it. And then there was a very interesting article that I came across that was on breath work and they use breath and fear to basically figure out how fast neurons were firing inside the body. And so they found that when somebody was nasal breathing, the, the neurons inside of their brain and, and their body uh, would fire faster. And if they started mouth breathing, it would fire slower. And they noticed that when individuals would get into like a fear state, like if they showed them like a, um, like a tragic image or did some sort of fright or something, people would go into this mouth breathing. So automatically everything started slowing down. So then that article then also progressed me a little bit further and going into, okay, well, you know, there's, something here if i'm looking for high velocity if i'm looking for speed if i'm looking for how fast an athlete processes a situation then if there's something that startles them then that's going to leave them susceptible to injury so then that's when i got into okay well then how can we get more into the perception of action now to reduce injuries essentially yeah it's considering the like those emotional layers i think is really helpful it was interesting there was a lot of, um, I don't know how 100% related this is, but there was a little bit of buzz going on social media about um, uh, Texas Christian and Colorado were playing each other. And apparently some of the Texas Christian players were cramping at the end of the game. And it's uh, Mark McLaughlin, who's been on this show, had put an infographic on how um, cramping is multifactorial. It's not just because um, the what was being put out there was, oh, this is related to Oh, the strength thing, there's blame being thrown at the strength and nutrition staff. And an infographic market put it shown that there's like emotional load. Like, is this that can factor in? There's a lot of things that can factor in. You know, the 
the emotion that's present in the game or it can play impact into the physiology as well so who knows exactly you know but it, with you know the specifics there but it's i just find it interesting i always look at that and i think that especially when you're talking about um things like fear and safety um or, or finding yourself in a flow state and being able to move there uh, i think there's there's a lot and it, it it makes you think too about you know this goes back to our last podcast where we were talking about like just how much you can do like your physical workload limits and when we look at just how much an athlete runs and sprints and moves in a game versus like just a typical workout like hey go sprint and do plyometrics it can be it can be a lot different um and so you know thinking about how some of those emotions might play into that and how you feel after the game or even it was funny with colorado too i know you know travis hunter plays both sides of the ball and they interview him after the game and he's like excited after you know his player load is like crazy insanely high and but he's like oh, i'm ready to go again you know like and you think about how much does that internal emotional state play into that that can maybe go a little bit beyond just a, a typical data point yeah i know that that's huge and that's actually a really important point point. And on the strength side, when we would do uh, weight room training, one of the things that I would always look for athletes to, to do essentially was to cramp. Because once we get them to the point of cramp, we've reached their tolerance point, and then they have to continue to hold that position to work through the cramp. So that was a, a physiological aspect for, from an emotional aspect. You know, if, if the game's not going the way that, you know, you're choosing for it to go or you desire for it to go. Uh, athletes will shut down and they'll basically create a way out. You know, I don't like how the situation's going. So, and it's subconscious programming that they're doing that they don't realize, but they're saying, okay, I'm looking for a way out. And then the body cramps, um, something bothers them and, and their body cramps. So it, we see it on the, whether you're doing perception action or if you see it in the weight room, I mean, it is, it is a real thing. Uh, it does occur. Yeah. Um, so when, it comes to how you're uh, framing this up for a training session. So like running athletes through you know, a speed session or something related to um, repeat efforts as related to sport or anything like that. I mean, speed, I guess, is an easy one just because it's pretty straightforward. If we're talking about how we're putting the, the environment together and perception, uh, what factors are you considering, Jared, when it comes to that? Like, what are some of the big things you're looking at athletes coming into a training session, how they're perceiving the session? how they're perceiving the work. Uh, what are some big things you're looking at there? Yeah. Well, the, the very first um, concept to say to grasp is, is uh, building a relationship with the athlete. And what that means to me is that the athlete is empowered and they have the freedom to be their true authentic self. And that doesn't mean that they need my permission for, to have that freedom. It means that they have come to that old autonomy where they can be their true authentic self. And so typically what that looks like is, is there's a discussion on the first day and this discussion also continues out, but it allows for the athlete to essentially clear, clear all fears. You know, what are you, uh, you know, where do you struggle on the field? Where do you feel like, you know, you're always beat? Uh, where is the position uh, that you're afraid that if you get into something might happen or somebody hits a backhand over to this corner, do you lose confidence here? You know, is it a left-handed pitcher? Is it a right-handed batter? Is it a slider? 
whatever it might be for any sport. And so you, you essentially clear those things out on the table where they're telling you where they feel like they fail. And a lot of times more than what you'll find is that those areas that they failed, there's usually a past trauma that has occurred there where let's say they got double teamed or something and they were brought over to a corner, they lost the ball somehow. And the next thing you know, the coach was ripping into them or they felt like they let their teammates down. So then there's, there's a pre-trauma that occurred. Then that sets up the next time that that situation occurs, the body essentially will freeze. And so that's why it's extremely important to get all that clearing out because you're allowing the athlete to just let go and and essentially vent of any sort of past traumas that might have occurred. And once they're able to do that, then you're able to have a good, strong foundation that allows you to just continually engage with the athlete where they continually uh, clear and all this stuff. Example of this would be uh, when we were, I was working with uh, at the facility, we had a group of seniors. And, uh, you know, when you have seniors who've already committed to Division One schools and you come in with an exercise program and say, okay, we're going to do isometrics or something. They all looked at me like, oh, why am I going to just hold this body position? Like, I just spent my last four years building myself and I made the person who I am. So why would I change my workout program? Fair enough question, I believe. And so I, there was a lot of pushback that would go, okay, you know, how do we work together to make sure you get what you feel like you needed because this is how you build yourself, but then also how do we trust each other? And so that is a, an example for me for how they continue to clear and we continue to talk, okay, you know, I'm doing these isometrics, but my lift numbers are going down, my sprint numbers are going down. So I don't think your program's working. So now what? And so they they just always have the confidence and the clarity to be able to say, I don't like how this is going. You know, I don't think this is working for me. What can we do different? So that that is always for me the foundation. It's the most important is that there always needs to be clear communication. And um, once that's laid down, I think your original question was going back to uh, how I structure a session to say. Yeah, yeah, like within the session itself. Yeah. So then within the session, once you, let's say if we're doing doing the perception action, once you realize what they're afraid of, uh, essentially that's the scenario that you need to create. So, and and this is just the things that I learned from Brett Adams. And I mean, we got great results and and there's other ways that we can get into talking about this too. But in essence, a lot of people, when they get into the perception action, it's, they lose track of that there's a purpose behind what you're doing because regardless of what you're doing the athlete should always know how to tie that specific scenario back to their sport um so when you're creating an environment it can be it can vary um i'll talk about the one specific at the moment about once you realize or once the athlete tells you what their fears are or the the positions or the situation that um you know, causes them that fear that where they're timid, they get the deer in the headlights. That's essentially the situation that you want to recreate. Um, so what that would mean then is, you know, if a batter, if, if there's a left, if he's like, okay, I'm, af- I'm afraid of lefties. Okay. Well, then that means that he's getting live at bats versus a lefty. If it's okay, well, I don't feel good when I'm, you know, double teamed and I'm pinned into a corner. 
So then you're going to create uh, a game that forces them to be in that position where they have to figure out, okay, do am I going to, you know, do I have to then do a route where I'm going to try and curve around these guys? Am I going to pass the ball? Um, how am I going to maneuver myself? Uh, one of the situations uh, that we that I did, um, I'll talk about the lacrosse player. So there was a lacrosse player that uh, when I asked him, he felt that he was always beat anytime that he felt like he had to rotate his body. So he was a goalie. And anytime that he felt like he got crossed up and he would start moving one direction and then he had to rotate back to try and get a, uh, to stop the ball, he always felt like that um, he was beat. And so what we did is we went to a football and we started to work on different routes where I'd purposely throw a ball behind him where he'd have to rotate back behind. Uh, we worked on some mat work where he was on his knees. So like a progression of he's on his knees, he's working to rotate and then from going to stand up and learning to rotate. Uh, but then also with that too, you, one of the best things that you can always, when it comes to fear is that you have to do the specific situation. So there, there is like a gradual buildup, but always the end goal is, is needs to be as, as identical as you can get it to the sport. So even though we started with the football and, and throwing back behind him and forcing him to rotate in, in these uh, upper positions, it needs to be like we finish with uh, using an actual lacrosse ball, lacrosse stick and a goal and working that way and forcing him to, okay, combination. Okay. Well, maybe we'll do a few reps with the football. Maybe we're going to do a few reps with the lacrosse ball. Uh, but that's ultimately the the end goal there. Uh, another environment you can do, which is also important, is that regardless of what the sport is, so if somebody plays baseball and you set up a, uh, the, the gator ball or something like that, you want to make sure that they know how to that specific event ties back to their sport. And so an example with that is when we were playing gator ball, We'd have two small cones to say on, on, or not cones, but goals, like soccer, mini soccer goals. And the athletes had to work up and down the goal to try and force themselves to, to score. However, there's four cones in the middle, which prevented any person from running through the middle of the field. Everybody had to essentially run on the outside. So they had to run slants. So they essentially had to go straight and then curve either right or left towards the goal in order to be able to, to score. After playing the game, you ask the athletes, okay, well, you know, what, you know, is there anything that you like to change? Is, how does this apply to your sport, um, et cetera? And one of the cool things about watching film uh, during that situation was that without the athletes, without our baseball players actually even knowing it, every single time that they would round a curve to head towards the goal, uh, they would treat it as if they were rounding a, a bag. So that, that was a great way for them to then realize, okay, this is how this sport or this activity, this small sided game relates to my sport where now, okay, now I'm learning how to actually round at second base. I'm learning how to actually learn to, you know, take a hard turn out of, you know, going from first to second. I know how to round that and get the best angle. And so th there's different examples there, but both of them are extremely important where either you're looking at the fear for it to be exactly how the situation occurs in the game, or you're looking for it to be where they're, your environment is created where subconsciously 
They don't necessarily recognize what's going on until after they can start piecing it together. And then if that athlete pieces together, then they can make it, they can start progressing it. So now like in the game, we can throw out a base on the say, like there's a, an actual base, like treating it, like turning like a double play to say, or um, maybe we're lurking how to work with first base, et cetera. However, that might be. What do you think, Jared, about, um, I guess you could say like the general side of things in the sense of, you could say a football player who goes to do track season, which is speed that without the perceptual stimuli of a, a football game, or even just general, you could just say just general training for the sake of general training, uh, as well as I think too about, um, uh, I think it's called like coyote teaching or, or the idea of like a Mr. Miyagi in the karate kid where he had him doing something that actually like when he was washing the fence he had no idea that it was relating to the thing but it was kind of tricking him into getting the motion so it's like you're actually putting the motions into and you could say too with something like that like a karate kid where you're doing the motion but it's it's still tied to meaning watching um where you're um cleaning a or painting a fence or you're doing a job but it's maybe you could say it's also not tied yet to the emotional stress of fighting someone yet. You know, that maybe could be a way of putting it. So I'm curious what your take is on, and, and I say that as well in light of, I get in our modern sports landscape where it's like, where everything is specific and people play, they play the same sport, they specialize very early and it's all that sport. And sometimes I think, Sometimes you think, well, if you can't beat the system, is there other ways that you could perhaps take people away from the uh, same stressors of their sport in the general portion of the training? Obviously, at some point, if you want to get better, you need to tie things into specific or specificity. But from a general perspective, uh, where athletes might be doing those things under a different emotional stress, like they're playing a game where they, they are replicating some of the movements, maybe not all of them, but it's still overall a good training load. And uh, basically, what are your thoughts on the idea of having athletes do something with no specificity, but they're doing the same thing and they're having fun? Um, I guess you could say you're tricking people into doing <laughs> certain movements. Um, any thoughts on like that kind of karate kid uh, wash the fence mentality for, for something that might transfer later? Well, there's, there's a couple of things that you actually mentioned that I want to touch on too. And, and going back to the track athletes too, is one of the things that I've learned with track, uh, track athletes is it's from what I saw in my experience, it was just, if not more important to have them play those games or to, with like timing gate systems, you're implementing a um, lot of variables, whether that might be they're chasing a soccer ball somebody's chasing them um another thing that we would do is we would have people work uh we'd set up timing gates and have people work through pickles uh pickles as in, in baseball when you get into mm -hmm. like a rundown and you get caught between the rundown and, and you're running back and forth and so we created scenarios like that where that was set up where you know you you could get it their times with the timing gate um recovering a fumble a fumble grappling work beforehand uh whatever it might be, but there's different ways that we would use to use an external focus in order to, for them to run faster. And that was for me, just like more profound for, 
uh, a track athlete who's only supposed to run a certain distance. And if you want to control things in games or whatnot, I mean, you can always put a time to it. So whatever their goal is for, okay, I'm going to complete my X run or my X sprint in 10 seconds or, you know, a minute and something, then that, that becomes the time interval for what you're working. And so then they learn, okay, essentially they're learning how to move and coordinate and, and play and under those time restraints as well. So there, there's a lot of different variables that you can do there. Uh, that's especially, and I also see that too, that it works really well with um, athletes coming off of an injury. I, I had a softball player and, you know, she's, she went everywhere, her, like a top prospect for, for the state. And, you know, they were pretty concerned. They, okay, does she need to get surgery? Does, you know, she's not getting better. And one of the very first things that I, I realized working with her is that every time she would throw a softball, her arm hurt. But if she threw a football, her arm didn't hurt. So what we ended up working mm-hmm. with is we basically had her throwing with a football and we would create different games where she was using a football and then we would go to a baseball and then we would go back to a softball and we would throw the softball. And then as soon as she says, okay, my arm's starting to hurt me, uh, hurt again, then we go back to a football and we would just continue to, to blend all this stuff mm. and through different games. And it got to the point where within a month, she wasn't able to throw one pitch and she was throwing over a hundred pitches, uh, pain free. And so that was just, and we kept always um, upping the stimulus. So it first started just to, as a game where we just maybe, maybe we're, yeah, because we just started out, we went out to the baseball field and all we did to start was we just ran around and essentially random areas, just throwing a football back and forth, mm. just moving. Um, and then we would go into uh, more specific. Okay. Oh, well, now you're, you know, you're maybe you're fielding because she, she also played third base if she wasn't pitching. So then we went to a little bit of that and then we would go into her actually uh, pitching and, uh, and then anytime like um, her arm started hurting, we would stop with the pitching. We would set up a, a game. We'd play the game, pain goes away. And then we go back to the pitching and we just kept blending the two uh, over and over again until the point where she could just throw as much as she want. Didn't matter what pitch either. It wasn't just fastball. She would throw all of her, you know, all of her pitches and, and make sure that she was pain free. So th- there's also that component that I think is, is just as good. Yeah. Today's podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is an online software for coaches and trainers, and I've continued to hear great things about the Team Builder platform. If you're looking for either an in-house training portal for your training groups or an online training hub, be sure to check out the Team Builder training software. You know, that that's something that I really am interested in. The um, I mean, I'm interested in a lot of facets of training, but the, but framing up, and I know we've had this conversation before, but the idea of um, exploration. Uh, like explorative work, uh, play-based work, and then dialing into, on the other side of the spectrum, dialing into outputs. And training sessions that, be it a training session or even a training block, or yeah, like you said, an athlete who's coming off of an injury, or you could even say an athlete who maybe has like burnout or something. How do you, how do you arrange things? And I think so often we only look at things, or training is only looked at on the level of sets and reps and and the very high specificity in biomechanics but at the end of the day sometimes athletes just need to play and do so with a different you know a little different implement and then you can 
transform that into the specific element of the output. Or even I think about, there's Jeremiah Flood who talked about, and you mentioned Gator Ball, but playing, and Jake Turum may have said something about this. Maybe he was there, <laughs> but they would play Gator Ball and then go do a 10 meter fly sprint or something like that. And then go play more Gator Ball and do a 10 meter fly sprint. And they were running really fast times, or I think maybe they were personal best times. And I've seen that just coming off of if we just do pick up soccer for the warm up, then people, I've seen kids go from the first few sessions, we do a 20 timed and they run their time. And then we warm up with pick up soccer and they run two tenths faster doing that as a warm up. And it's just like, there's, there's a lot of power in here. And there's a lot of things I think where you can really use that and unpack that. But um, I, I'm curious too, based off what you had said with um, the softball player example and throwing the football, um, arranging, and I will say one other thing too with that, it reminds me of, it makes you think of how much of that was mental and how much was the very specific throwing pathway. I know DJ Mirakami had talked about a client who was doing like deadlifts with a sandbag and was like, I can't do deadlifts, my back, I, I can't do this. And But just prior, she had been doing a clean and press with the sandbag. So, she was deadlifting, but it's like, when, as soon as the word deadlift comes out, it's like, you know, psychosomatic, I can't do this, you know, and it makes me think of how much of that type of thing is mental versus actually physical or some whatever combination. Uh, anyways, <laughs> I, was, I, I was definitely curious for you to go a little bit more into a training session uh, and how that can unfold on the level of uh, starting with play, starting with exploration. Uh, and then how that can transform into outputs, or maybe if you're starting on outputs and it's not going very well, being like, all right, let's turn this into something that's more play or exploration based. Uh, I'm curious how those three pieces rotate around um, in your training sessions, or how you can see them as variables that can be manipulated. Yeah, um, I will go. I'm going to share something on, on what you just said um, real quick for a minute. Um, so the, another component, I, I mean, we've talked about how I'm in chiropractic school and I also do, um, acupuncture with that as well. Um, Germany is, is probably one of the leading, I guess, modern of, of putting the most amount of research and science behind acupuncture. Hmm. And in, even to practice acupuncture in Germany, you have to be uh, medically licensed. And so there's, there's a lot of research behind that. If, if, if a medical doctor is saying, you know, this is the only way that you can be an acupuncture. So anyway, where I'm going with this is that there's actually, they were able to find pain memory points. And so mm -hmm. with auricular therapy, which means in the ear, um, if there was, if a person came in with pain, one of the protocols that you would clear was that you would hit the pain memory spots. And essentially you're, you're clearing that energy that's stuck in those, uh, those fields because our body is, is made up of electricity um, our bones are made up of crystals. Our, our muscles are made up of water. Um, Jared Pollock's research in Veda Austin at, at the University of Washington have showed that water holds memory. And so our, our muscles aren't just, some Russians would say that their muscles are just stupid. Uh, that's not the case. They, they actually hold uh, intelligence. And so that's extremely important when you're going into a training session and, and also confirms that, you know, with the, what they found in acupuncture, that there are these pain memory points that when an event happens, the body holds on to that emotion. And so you have to release that. So that I'll go on to the, the question now, but I do think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, now with the question, uh, one of the things that you can, it, 
whether you're, you're looking at us, um, changing it with how the field is set up, like how the structure is, if you're looking at what objects you're going to use for, um, you know, balls, are you going to use a weight or you're not going to use a weight? Um, those are all things that you need to, to consider. And so, and also to, I, I don't remember if I talked about this on the previous podcast as well, but also how you set up the environment. You know, if, if you make, you know, sometimes when we would run our, let's say flying tens or, or accelerations, we would set up an area where everything looked super closed off. So what we were able to do is we were able to, because we were inside of a, a baseball facility, we were able to put down nets uh, that would essentially make the, the play area look smaller. And if the play area looks smaller, then you perceive as you can achieve more distance faster mm. because it looked, you know, and then if you take that same mm. 10 yards and you move up the screen and they got this long, you know, 200 feet of open space. Now, all of a sudden they're not, their eyes are, you know, looking way far, far out. So now this, you know, same thing that was 10 yards now looks like 30 yards. And so that was one way that you can change perception of, of changing how closed off the environment looks and if there's backgrounds and all that stuff, because that's going to influence, okay, you know, this looks like because it's so closed off, I can literally take two steps and I've run 10 yards. Oh my gosh, now it looks like I have to run like, a, you know, marathon, you know, mm -hmm. to run 10 yards because of how open the field is. So that was one way I, I mentioned the, the rundowns, um, with this, it, it, what I think is also very important is that you look at your sport and you understand the dimensions of the sport. So this would be where you, you know, you're talking to the actual, I don't know, football coach or skill coach, or you can even Google all these dimensions, but you understand the dimensions of the basketball court, the tennis court, the football court. And then you also watch and you learn how people move. Are they running curved? Are they running, you know, a full 20 yards all the time? Are they only running five yards? Are they running 12 yards? And whatever you start seeing patterns of how far people are running, then that's essentially how you you set up your timing gates or your your game or whatever it might be. Um, so that's also just as important because now you're starting to tie in, you know, the, what happens in the game to your actual play experience. So now, you know, don't be afraid to put your timing gates at an angle where you're running a curve. Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid to work rundowns and don't be afraid to uh, to roll soccer ball out or you know where you're working there and then you go and sprint and take off or the grappling work or uh, getting up from the ground or rolling or uh, whatever it might be. So that that's, and, and if you're, is, uh, are you looking for any more specific examples than that? But that's just the, the framework, the general of multitude of different factors of what we would use. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense with the, I've seen, um, and I haven't gone too far to this, but I know with like, uh, like Tony Holler, Track Football Consortium, and Chris Corfist, and the football piece there. I didn't go to the football presentations when I um, spoke at those. Uh, would have been it would have been interesting for sure. Um, but I believe that there was coaches using timing gates in conjunction with like specific routes and patterns and things that people were doing at practice, and that makes a lot of sense, you know. Um, and especially from that that specificity element of things. Uh, I think that, and probably more if we're looking at meaning, I think, I really, to me, I think the big thing is, is meaning, because um, that is inherently instantly extremely meaningful. Running a, a 10 or a 20, uh, just running that and getting a time on its own linear 
somewhat meaningful. Obviously, you want to beat your time. You want to get better. If you have a record board or a leaderboard in real time, probably becomes even more meaningful. You know, if you get a band or something for running a particular time, even more meaningful, you know, and I think a lot of it does come back to the meaning aspect of things. Um, at the same time, too, like if it's general and you want to take a break from the specificity of your sport, well, that's why track season is just naturally great. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's just it's all it's all there. Um I don't know if you have any uh, further things to mention with that. I do think something you said was interesting with the the way the space is and the way the athlete perceives it and the the visual element. I I've seen research on. I'm trying to remember the exact um, what what the exact um, parameters were with this, but it was something like they had different people look at a flight of stairs. Even this is just general population, and they had them estimate the steepness of the stairs. And basically, people who were, um, I, I don't know 100% how related this is, but people who were in better physical condition or maybe it was their stress level would rate the stairs to be not as steep. <laughs> and the people who were in less uh, good of physical condition or higher stress would say the stairs were steeper than they actually were. And I mean, to me, I just say that because it's just interesting that, you know, research shows that we, there's this very strong link between our own abilities and how we perceive the environment. And then it's very reasonable to say things could very quickly and easily work the other way around with how you perceive the environment and what en- ends up um, be- being in your physical outputs. Or even, too, your your fear or safety of the environment. How comfortable are you in this environment? And I think that's where you really get into the game speed pieces, too. Um, how quickly and easily and comfortable are you moving in the game? Um, so, uh, me saying that now, I'm kind of like forgetting about the, uh, yeah, the back to like the very specific routes, finding specific, um, um, specific distances and things like that. Uh, I, I, the follow up actually I have for this one. And if there's anything you have with that, um, do you, is there anything you want to add to that? Cause I do have a follow up. Um, yeah, just, just briefly, the um, track and field is really the only one that has the, the specific metrics uh, of what you're going to run. And so, my recommendation would be, you know, even if you're doing football or baseball to not get fixated on what you have to, like the distance you have to run. Like, so like, don't be afraid to, to have your, your background data be five yards or 15 yards or 12 yards outside of the norm of the, the, the 10 and the 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause a, l- a lot of time what we find in sports is that most people are not running a 10 yard that's more of they're working between 12 and 18 yards, or maybe it's you're only working for the first five yards. So to, to be comfortable with just because the, the strength conditioning standard is that we're going to run a flying 10 or a 10 yard acceleration or a 30 or four, whatever it might be, it's okay to, to be more specific than that. And that's what I would recommend. Uh, that's what I saw that, that produced the, the best ro- uh, results. Uh, but then also to, like I said, understanding the, the dimensions of the field, you know, running, um, bases, you have 90 feet. So make sure that you work with 90 feet. If you're going to work with running from first to second, then, you know, the, that doubles. So then you learn to work with that distance. Um, but just keeping in mind those, those dimensions of the field. Yeah. So the, my, um, yeah, so my thought with what you were saying um, just with things that were specific and this going a little bit to the non-specific and not not specific, but I should say not as measurable. And maybe this is a thing too, where 
Um, I think sometimes when you have things that are measured, it can and um, measured and predictable in the sense of hey, we're gonna do we're gonna do this distance today. Um, sometimes and and maybe and if you say we're we're doing this distance and this amount of reps, um, which I think I think is a good thing. But I think at the same time, there if we think about flow states, we think about sport. And I know Frank Frensich has said this about nature: is in nature, you don't know how far you're running. <laughs> uh, you might be chased, and you have no idea. And I think that there is something to say, be said about like a flow state of being in the present moment of having uncertainty um, because it does force you can't think about, okay, I got this many more and I'm done or, you know, or maybe I hope my time is this on this one. You are more in the moment and you're processing. Um, and I, I, I was thinking about one thing I was thinking about, even as you were you know, talking about some of the points that you were mentioning was when I was um, with the uncertainty, one of the best, or the most athletic, um, at least this uh, most generally athletic in the sense of being able to like jump really high, dunk really well. The sad thing is, is I still went through this basketball season and only scored like, it's funny looking back, I thought I scored like 11 or 12 points a game my senior year of high school. And I only scored like, I actually, my parents dug up the stat line and I only scored like seven. <laughs> I was like, oh man, I thought I was better than that. It's like some heuristic where you think you're better than you really were. Um, so, you know, in terms of basketball specific stuff, I would have needed a lot more of what you're talking about. For me, it was more like, oh, well, I could at least jump, you know, really high and dunk well, which was my, that was more of my goal in so many ways anyways, which maybe is telling of the seven points a game instead of like 12 or 15. Um, but we would do a lot of, um, just wind sprints, you know, change of direction, fast change of direction, running lines, you know, hit the free throw line and run back, hit the midcourt line and run back. A lot of racing. The coach would always tell me I was the fastest guy on the team and make me race the point guard. And but there was never he would never say, and I don't think this happens in like you know basketball or a lot of typical team conditioning. It was just start running lines, and when the coach decides you're done, you're done. You don't know when you're going to be done. You know, you don't know how many more you have to do. And it was just interesting because I did that kind of training for, I don't know how long, I mean, we, it was kind of um, in and out with how intense that focus was, but I would say it was at least three or four weeks where we were doing that type of work hard enough where I wasn't going and lifting weights in my basement, you know, a few times a week after practice, like I often did, I was just, that was just so much. But at the end of all of it, I was able to Shoot, I probably mentioned this on the last podcast we did, but like basically do 15, 20 minutes of sprints after practice that were hard, shake my legs out, have the capacity and ability to, to go up then and jump and touch my highest three inches over the top of the square of the backboard and catch alley-oops or close to it where my head was close to the rim. Like just felt like I was Superman rocketing off the ground. And it was the product of something that actually wasn't met like formally measured the meaning was race the other players and you should be faster than this joel and, and i didn't know how many i was doing and i mean it's just it was interesting to consider all that these days too i think there's something powerful in change of direction and um <clears throat> a lot more things in change of direction type sprinting that i didn't know about in the past but uh it was just interesting to think about that so long-winded story to ask your take on when it's the more like nature, like when you don't know how many or you don't know how far, um, if there's any thoughts you have on any sort of training ideas like that. Uh, yeah. And on the, 
I use more of that within the weight room than I did on mm. the field to say. Because, no, maybe, maybe not. It, there, there is a time uh, for sure, especially when you know you're doing long duration isometrics or you're doing things where you know they're doing thousands and thousands of reps of one specific thing. Um, there's that uh, you know from the mental aspect of well, it doesn't really matter how many reps I do. I'm just looking for how would I would phrase this for the athlete what i'm looking for them is not necessarily to be focused on the stopwatch or be focused on the reps i'm looking for them regardless of the external focus for them to be able to put a hundred percent into every single rep and so because a lot of times people get focused on the time or the reps and they'll say okay all right now i know I, now i know i need to you know i can kind of coast a little bit halfway through here and then you know finish strong so then i can you know, rep out as fast as I can for the last, I don't know, 10 reps or something like that. So if they don't have an end goal or there's no time, there's no reps, um, every single rep is, is their own accountability to say mm. of, of how much intention, how much effort do you want to put into that specific rep, um, field work, um, that might be more for grappling. It could be for for the sprinting. I mean, I think it applies. Um, but I, I think that just goes back to the, the idea of the athlete having the, the freedom and the autonomy and being able to uh, just feel like they can run. Like if they want to run, go for it. But also to putting them in the constraints, uh, understanding that there are dimensions in the field, like the, the sports we do play have those. So that is something that we do have to, to keep in mind. If you're in the world of sports performance, you've probably heard of jump testing mats. These mats use hang time to measure total jump height or contact time to measure quickness abilities off of the ground. The best jump mat that I've come across also happens to be a sponsor of this show, which is the Plyomat. The Plyomat is not only accurate, easy to use, and affordable, but it also allows you to string multiple mats together to add an extra dynamic to plyometric testing and training. To check out the Plyomat, you can head to plyomat.net. That's P-L-Y-O-M-A-T dot net. Yeah, I think there's, yeah, there's, there's just, rather than framing it of, oh, what's superior, I think there's just benefits of both. And I think that ultimately, if you're going to be the best you can be in a skill, there needs to eventually be some level of constraining towards that, towards the direction you want to go in terms of more concrete work. But I think for myself too, I was someone who was so... I mean, I started training myself, uh, like lifting weights in the basement when I was like 11 <laughs> and, you know, thinking about sets and reps and training arrangements. And I think in some ways there's almost maybe athletes who may, if you're too much like that, you know, if you're too quantitative, you almost need a burst of that, like a little randomness and a little to get used to stay in the moment. Um, mm -hmm. versus trying to think, um, Richard Ashavis, he had called it, I think he had approached training from the mental, uh, this is my memory is so bad, but like it, it, one of the ones was, uh, strategizing. So it's like, there's, there's, um, I know at least two of them. One was just, you are interfacing with the, the workout emotionally. And then the, another one was you are strategizing the workout. Like if it's a, I think his reference is like a CrossFit workout where it's like, all right, I got this and I got this and I got this. So here's how much effort I'm going to put here. Here's how much effort I'm going to put here. 
where it's a, a mental construct. You are mentally assessing your training versus actually getting in and emotionally interfacing with it. And the way to do that is when you don't know, <laughs> you don't know what's coming. You don't know how many you have to do. And on top of that too, it's a, there's a high quality demand. I think, I think it's one thing if a coach has an athlete, athletes doing a bunch of wind sprints and it's like, and there's no like, um, like I've had workouts with basketball where it's like, yeah, just do a bunch of wind sprints and they're all at a relatively low intensity and just surviving it till the coach says you're done. But that it, within that, there's very little intensity, meaning any sort of specificity. I know the example I gave before, the coach was always having me like race the other players. And I think for me, that training might have hit me differently than other players who weren't being told that they were the fastest player on the team, they should be faster than this, et cetera, et cetera. I would say that's a big part of it. Um, it kind of makes me think almost a way to you could possibly do it. And this is where my track brain comes out is there was a cross-country coach um, at my university, Cedarville University, where I went, who, uh, I mean, he was an older guy when I, when I was there. I think he was in his 70s, 60s or 70s. So you could say old school, but I think part of being quote-unquote old school, there's a lot of bad you know, over-conditioning, you could say, practices that came with that. But there's also, I think, a lot of creativity um, just because a lot of those coaches didn't have a manual. And one thing this coach did was he, for the cross-country team, he called it lottery runs. And I remember someone telling me about this workout when I was there. And I was like, uh, I, I, it made no sense to me <laughs> when it was being explained. But it was like, basically, you run a 400 at a certain pace, and then the coach flips a coin while you're running. And then if it's heads, you have to run another lap. If it's tails, you don't. <laughs> and I, I almost wonder, to me, part of it, I would think I... I would almost want to start i i don't know i guess you could you could really do this anywhere it could morph into anything but part of me would think almost of starting with more work like that if you're when you're doing speed work just to make sure whatever is done is being done in the moment and then maybe you have more you know outside of getting your mileage in your solid base mileage in early maybe it becomes more structured later on i don't know i just this is my mind kind of going but i just think that it is uh, an interesting thought to look at how an athlete tends to process a, tra a training. Are they strategizing? Are they very overly mental, cerebral? How do they interface with it emotionally? Um, you know, and then finding ways to dig into that versus absolutely every single thing being, all right, this many sets, this many reps, this amount of time. Um, again, not that I don't think that there's a good, solid, overarching time and place for that, um, because I know th that's also been a helpful part of my own training background is doing just, hey, we're going to go run seven 200s tempo. It's a recovery day. It's also elasticity. And my goal mentally was to do each of those as relaxed and easy as possible. And I think that was helpful too. Um, anyways, I, I'm kind of rambling a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, just uh, if you have anything yeah. with that, I'm, I'm certainly curious. Yeah, the variability is really important. You talked about, I mean, the nature. In nature, there's a lot of variables. Some people would say they're randomness or some even, I think the physics word is stochastic. It's, it's yeah. randomness. And that is, I've, I've found that to be just as beneficial. Um, you know, that there was a, a guy I was working with and he mentioned that his, he was a, um, uh, power lifter, uh, if not a power lifter, um, yeah, power lifter. And, and so he would lift huge amounts of weight 
and he got the most amount of gains when he would actually, okay, today I'm only going to squat at 70%. Tomorrow I'm going to squat at 85. Third day, I'm going to do 52%. Mm. Fourth day, I'm going to go 98%. Sixth day, I'm going to go 92%. And essentially varying that is how he got his, his biggest strength gains. And I think that can be just as beneficial in, in a sport game or if you're playing something with training is is always changing a, a, a slight degree of a, a variable, whether it's the angles different of a football throw that's like you're not doing the same thing over and over again, or you're in the weight room and, and a slightly different angle of you know how you would do a, a press or something like that. All those different variables uh, are going to make you stronger. They're going to make you faster. And then the way that I think about it is that is that the more variable, the more variability that you see, the more that you can predict the outcomes. And that's important when you're on the field is that most people get stuck in situations or they freeze is because they they're put into a situation that they've never experienced before. Or when they did, you know, the first time they experienced and it didn't go well, then they were screamed and yelled at. And so now they have a trauma behind that. Hmm. And so it's, it's, it is important that when you are in um, practicing or you're in the training sessions is that you're, you're, doing those different things so the athletes continue to see different things. And then once they feel like they've, well, I've tried everything, I've tried everything, then that's when it's extremely important for then you as a coach who recognizes maybe uh, something they haven't tried before, and then you go and perform that real quick. And then now they can see a whole new way or they can see like, wow, you know, why didn't I think of that before? And, and so that's just as important. I, I, I do believe. And it's funny, you mentioned that with the the lottery, I, grew up with uh they called it the deck of death and so you'd have 52 cards and they would flip up a card and you know if it was clubs you're doing push-ups if it was hearts you're running you know suicides if you know etc whatever you want it to be but uh, (laughs) so uh, there's that component as well yeah yeah the the card deck it is funny because it's like this it makes me think of like college dorm room where like that's what the, the guys would hey you want to do a card deck push-up you know like something like that you just think of it as this i don't know i guess fun like bro thing to do with the card deck and different types of push-ups with whatever came up but you know it's funny i i um got a book by the late bud jeffries who's a really well-known like strong man and he's in martial arts and a lot of movement practices and he had a little bit different way of thinking about things but he would ha- his workouts would be like he would list like work up to, it would be something like, hey, do six um, singles with a heavy weight and then your cooldown is the card deck. <laughs> and it's different, move, different, you know, automated variability. And I think that, you know, it's just funny because back when I was in college, I would have thought very, nothing of the variability. Because again, my mind was so just structured, sets, reps, what's the ultimate training structure? In reality, doing the card deck of push-ups with your buddies is fun. Like there's something and the variability is just built in. You know, it's like you're you're kind of combining elements. It's it's um and for me, I, I could have really would have really needed those things to take away my strategizing brain for that. It's just where where that was my go-to. So yeah, I know this past winter I did um a lot of work and I'm looking forward to doing it this next winter is a lot of my training would be with a sandbag. Uh, and then with the card deck and I, it was really, really good. I mean, especially two days where I wasn't really necessarily feeling it, um, where the goal, and I think too, that's the thing is if you're going into a workout and you aren't like, you aren't feeling amazing, 
then you in a typical situation you warm up typically you're like all right, i'm not feeling amazing still not feeling amazing you go through you're having a there's a judgment-based feedback loop for whatever the first sprint or activity you do is oh it wasn't very good and there's really no way to win that workout whereas if you go into i mean the card deck is more like a play-based where there's not the judgment feedback loop there is a little bit of steady cardio that's kind of helping your I think kind of helps your body both engage and recover. And by the end of that, you might actually feel pretty darn good the same way as if you weren't feeling great and you went and played a game of pickup basketball or something or spike ball. And so I think there's something with the card deck as well with like the judgment-based feedback loop. Once you take that offline, I think that can give you a really good and positive experience. And that kind of idea, I think you could plug into whatever you're doing. It could be weights, um, Probably could even be ISOs on a, on a level. I'd be curious what your thoughts are would, would be with doing that with ISOs. Um, ISOs, I think, is a little bit different. But yeah, do you have any thoughts on that with like the what you how would you arrange that uh, in different ways or with ISOs in mind? With specific to the cards or just variability? <laughs> yeah, variability cards, like anything like that. Um, like like holding yeah, doing the I, long ISO. So, I mean, the way that I, I do the isometrics, though, is like my screening eval is essentially for them to identify which muscles don't like they don't have control over um and so whatever muscles they can't contract uh just by sitting in a chair um that's then how i i base the isometrics and sometimes so, so like a, a a common one is that people aren't able to engage their outside of their hamstring the outside of the hamstring is the bicep femoris um that typically goes on uh, kicks on when the foot is slightly externally rotated and you get more pressure on the outside of the foot. That's usually when it first engages. And so then for an isometric lunge, the variability might be okay for this first rep, you're going to externally rotate your foot and you're going to squeeze your pinky toe or push your pinky side, you know, down into the ground, activate, um, that outside, uh, hamstring. And then maybe the next rep, you're going to do it normal. And then now you're going to, you're going to keep mm -hmm. blending the two of rotating the foot out going back to neutral rotating the foot out or maybe you work at various degrees where it's okay how, you know turn your foot out as far as you can okay i can engage my my uh, hamstring now you're going to put it in you're going to go you know degree by degree back towards the midline as soon as you feel like you lose the control over the outer hamstring then that's when you're going to stop there and then now you're going to do a, a five minute isometric there so a lot of what I would do there was, is more of brain body awareness of, okay, exactly figuring out at what joint angle, what position do I now lose the brain body connection over that muscle. And then now that's what we're going to focus on. And I, I always try and tailor that to gait. So however, the muscles would fire during a normal gait mm -hmm. of walking, you know, one side is going to be flexing, one side is going to be extending. And so that's how I'd also tailor those isometrics off. Um, and you know if you want to do card games you could do card games and and flip up certain thing and okay this one you know you you hold for x amount of time or maybe <laughs> this one it's reps um oh, yeah. you know you're doing reps and this one you're doing holds yeah. yeah but that that's more how i would um approach the isometrics and i and i would even do that into the shock training too though mm. um is you know okay now if we're doing shock training you're going to change these slight different angles to, to get that same result. And, and you get the same thing too, when you, even on the perception action, I mean, one of the things that we would use, um, which I think is a great idea is either if you tie like flags or a clothespin 
uh, the clothespin I, I learned from Brett, but you know, if you have an athlete who let's say came off of a knee injury and you're working on some grappling work or you're working on some mat work and you put a clothespin on their, uh, around their knee and you're saying, okay, don't allow the other opponent to grab that clothespin. Now you're creating a lot of awareness around that knee because now they're, they're rotating mm-hmm. around they're you know, somersaulting, they're being thrown on their back and, and they're being put in all these various positions and they have to, um, learn how to essentially control that knee. Um, or it might be vice versa. You put it somewhere, not even near the knee. Um, and then you have them do the same thing and work with that. Um, I would even do, you can even do like reflex points. So, uh, the knee and the opposite elbow are going to be connected. And so you can put it on the opposite elbow because if you have dif- dysfunction and let's say the, the right knee, you're uh, most likely going to have a little bit of dysfunction in the left elbow. Um, so you could do that. Um, even things with uh, uh, same side hamstring and tricep work. So let's say somebody's shoulder was bothering them or they had pec tightness, like you could work um, where it's back behind their tricep or their hamstring. And, and that's going to then create awareness to those areas as well. Yeah, that's really interesting with doing that. Yeah, the clothespin and, and awareness. Um, you know, when you were talking about the ISOs too, I was thinking about I've seen um, it's a, he's like kind of a like a Wim Hof breath hold um, type instructor. Uh, he had a video on the horse stance isometric, and he was talking about using a timer. I actually downloaded this. I just call it capricious timer <laughs> on my phone. But it gives you um, like a window where you don't know how long you're going to hold the, the ISO. And you, you could set the timer, all right, you're going to hold it somewhere between 1.30 and 4 minutes or something like that. And apparently, I think he had said that he had had good luck with that actually um, helping him to be able to set um, records in the holds. Because, I don't know, it's something to do with your brain and you, know, you can always hold 10 more seconds, you know, and you, there's maybe that level of uncertainty with it, or maybe it's present moment or present mind and type piece. Um, but I, yeah, I think that the card deck would be interesting too, doing like holds or like a bounce hold or going through reps of the motion. Um, yeah, it definitely could be a really interesting thing. I was even just thinking too, for sprinting, it would be interesting if it was track, like, like something that's common is like a 23 second run. It would be an interesting practice, almost to like warm up for that, where maybe you just have people race like groups of three, and they didn't know how far they were going to go. And then when you blew the whistle, they were done or something like that. And it could be 100 meters. It could be 150. It could be, it could be 300. <laughs> uh, it'd be interesting to play around with just to, you know, just emotionally teaching people to race. This is where my mind, of course, goes with these things. Um, back, uh, I, I do have one last little question here. I know our time's kind of running out, but uh, we've talked about this before, Jared, but the idea of how athletes move in one environment versus another. So for example, an athlete who maybe they move really well if they're just playing, it's a play-based environment and they move well, but then as soon as it's coached or maybe they're competing, they really start to struggle. Um, I'm curious what your take is on how athletes move and um, are able to compete in different environments if they really struggle in like practice versus a game or those types of situations. Um, Any consideration with the layers that go into that? and trying to help bring out like a more pure form of movement. So, yeah, it, great question you bring up. And, and, um, cause that shows you where the, 
where the showcase people are versus the actual uh, athletes to say. And like in baseball, we would see, you know, one of the things for recruiting videos is that they, you know, they want everything to look pretty, you know, make sure, okay, you know, hit me a ball up the middle, show me a pretty low backhand. Okay. I'm going to charge on this one. Uh, And then when you hit, you know, you're making sure the ball is always in this specific spot so that I get the, you know, the best exit velo, et cetera, et cetera. But then as soon as you put them in an environment where they're doing rundowns or they're uh, catching a football, it's like all of a sudden their times just dramatically drop. Like as soon as you bring in these external focuses, they can no longer um, run as fast. And then you find these athletes who do differently with their showcase, you know, it might be okay. But then as soon as you get them into like a, a skill game or something like that, all of a sudden they become the best player. It's just their ability to like pass and coordinate how the players are on the field or their ability to run and track something down. Like they would just run so much faster. And so I I think that's, that's one of the cool things that you can recognize. So then you can also then work with those athletes. Now you realize that, okay, so yeah, maybe this guy's in a showcase guy, but look what he can do when we play a game. And if this guy is more of a showcase guy, then you know that you have a lot more work uh, to do with the perception action. I mean, yeah. I couldn't tell you the amount of times that we would have like a, a guy who run a flying 10 and it'd be sub one second and you're looking at him and you're like, what? Like, how, mm-hmm. like that looked terrible. Like, mm-hmm. and also you can't, like, he's so stiff and he can't move. Like, how did he just, how did he just do that? Um, and, and so that was one of the things that we learned um, is just that, that putting those people in those environments, you learned who the gamers were and you learned who, mm-hmm. uh, the showcase people were yeah yeah it definitely makes sense and yeah the more that i've been around especially the different ends of sport um, getting into more youth sport coaching now you see just how different it is with like a child running in a game where they might be nervous or anxious or not know what to do when like someone stops them playing soccer versus then i'll watch like my children just run on the sidewalk and they run so much faster and more easily and fluidly versus that um, the lag that they're trying to process the game. And of course, they'll get better as they get older, you know, but you always think about the pieces of that that still might be there, you know, and where hangups do arise um, in processing your environment from a lot of different perspectives. So, yeah, well, I think that's where it's important too. like a lot of parents always try and have their players or their kids like play up. I, I do think there's something to that because when they're playing up, just as you mentioned, that there's more experience, there's more variability, like there's situations the players have been more present in. And so that's going to further upgrade um, their their output. Um, and, and I saw the very, I mean, personally experienced this with um, sprinting. Like I'm, like I'm not a fast person at all. And uh, when I do like training sessions with Brett, like he is very fast. Um, and there'll be times where we're racing and we'll look at the GPS data. And there's times where his top speed for the day is capped essentially based upon me, mm-hmm. where because I was running slower than him. Now he's not running and, you know, at 20 miles per hour, he's running 16, 17, and I'm running 16, 17. And then there's other times where I would have thought I would never be able to run faster than that. And then all of a sudden I hit, you know, 19 miles per hour. And I'm like, how is that even possible? And it's like, well, 
I'm working with three guys right now who are way faster mm-hmm. than me. And it just, it forces you to run faster. And you're like, well, I never ran that fast, but all the data shows that, you know, the, the sprints were much faster. So th- there is something to that of understanding, you know, the, the competition and making sure that, you know, you're with people who are better than you. You're with people yeah. who are not as good as you. And, and you're also working with people who are at your level as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know, um, uh, Jared, our time's finished up here, but uh, do you have any closing thoughts before we uh, get out of here for the day? Um, no, I, I, I appreciate you bringing me back on and uh, I enjoy it. And like always, I'm very appreciative of your podcast. Is, that is what started my part of what started my curiosity and all the strength and conditioning. So I'm very appreciative. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. And, and thank you for being on again. It was great chatting today. Appreciate it thanks for tuning in to another episode i appreciate you listening and i'll see you next week